Technology in our world is evolving at a phenomenal pace. And keeping up with what that means in the Human Factors world can be challenging. That's where Human Factors Cast comes in. Human Factors Cast is a weekly podcast that highlights and breaks down stories that are chosen by you, the Human Factors community. Each week, a panel made up of Human Factors practitioners, UX specialists, and engineers sit down to discuss a weekly dose of knowledge that keeps you up to date with the latest areas of interest. New York State is giving out hundreds of robots as companions for the elderly. Buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreen. A prototype just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. The show provides perspective based on experiences from different domains and different industries. We even cover some of the hottest conferences in the field. On this episode, we're recapping EHF, Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, Neuroergonomics Conference, Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, UXPA International, the International Symposium on Human Factors and Ergonomics in Healthcare, and we have the best guests. I'm joined today by Chris Reed, Micah Inslee, Farzan Sassen Gohar, Joe Keebler, Peter and Gabby Hancock. We have a dedicated community of listeners that engage with the show and contribute to the topics discussed. Join me, Nick Rome. And me, Barry Kirby. Every Friday morning when Human Factors Cast drops on YouTube and your favorite podcast directory. And remember, it, it depends. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors Podcast. I have to admit, I am a little extra excited today as I get to launch our new segment, Let's Get Real, where we drop all filters and stop masking and get real about special and sometimes sensitive topics and issues. Today in our first ever Let's Get Real segment, we talk about failure as a path to innovation and resilient outcomes. For this, I have invited on my mentor and dear friend, Christy Harper. Christy is a partner at End-to-End Research, which she founded together with her partner, Monica, many years ago after a successful career as a usability expert in the technology sector. Christy and I share the joys and plights of being an entrepreneur and have definitely bonded over such over the years, allowing for me to not only gain her as a mentor in business and life, but for us to develop such a great friendship over the years. And funnily, over the past two to three years, we have definitely seen the topic of failure come up more often in our conversations and how our often limited view and definition of failure can sneak into our lives very subtly, but then influence every aspect of it full on. And that's from personal relationships to work relationships, from life aspirations to career ambitions, from projects to products in research and product development. Together, we venture into the often avoided topic of failure and how its perception across cultures and individual thinking play a pivotal role, not just in product and medical device design and development, but also our personal and professional growth. Failure and how we define it will nearly always dictate our outcomes. For a moment, Christy and I get real uncomfortable talking about failure and how our thinking around it limits not just innovation, but our entire lives. And now, everyone settle in, 
and let's get real, real uncomfortable. I promise it won't hurt. And let's welcome Christy to the podcast. Hello, Christy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. And Christy, to kind of jump in cold into the topic of failure, you and I definitely have spoken about this topic for a while now, and it even culminated in us writing a paper about it together, how failure as a path to innovation and resilient outcomes came to be. And so I wondered if you can give our listeners a quick intro in like how we spoke about the topic and how it kept creeping up and how we ended up deciding that it was a bigger thing to be discussed. Yeah, sure. So I think you and I have been communicating for a long time, and we've also been at conferences together. I believe we met at a conference, actually, when we were talking about, I was talking about wayfinding in hospitals many years ago. But I think as we go to conferences, we see different themes emerge. And just speaking with colleagues, different things seem to come up a lot. And one thing that comes up a lot is imposter syndrome. And another thing that comes up is this sort of fear of taking a risk or fear of failure or not knowing how to navigate the corporate world and still show what seems to be a failure as a success. And it also bleeds over a lot into even your personal life and the way you approach things. You mentioned that both of us started businesses, right? So there's a bit of a risk there, right? There is definite fear of failure, but without embracing that, you don't move forward in life, right? So that's something you and I've talked about. And something we've talked about with product development is if you're too afraid to try new things, to test new things, you're never going to innovate. Most certainly. I think that's always where we end, right? We have these great discussions on failure and our perception of it and how society defines it and how we're so stuck in a rut with it. But then interestingly, you and I start on the personal level and then we go X, Y, Z, and boom, we're at the same end again, where we realize failure It starts with our perception and definition of it in ourselves, but whether that is in line with what society thinks or whether you want to jump and get out of that and define it on your own through your experiences and life, it directly affects the outcome of any project that you're on. And with us working in product development, it always affects the product and it can stifle its innovation or it can give it wings. So it's one of those things where it's always interesting for me that we started these discussions on a personal level. We'll discuss what failure is, how we've been faced with it again, what happened this week that makes us doubt everything we're doing again. Like I said in the beginning, it subtly creeps in but it affects everything in the end. And I think with that, the thing that struck me the most when we were writing the paper was that I found this article how in Western cultures, failure is often considered vulnerability, like a weakness, even though vulnerability is not a weakness. We'll get to that later. But 
it's considered a weakness and therefore often avoid it. Like the discomfort, the embarrassment, the humiliation and shame that are associated in Western cultures with failure often stifles us. And in other cultures, it's considered a part of the learning process and they embrace it. And in those cultures, children are actually taught early on in school to welcome failures as something to learn from, revel in, and actually rally around, bringing everybody together, overcoming it together. And so to fail is the process that leads to achievement for them. And it is imperative one experiences failure, if only to understand the juxtaposition of accomplishment and success. But for us in Western cultures, and often, let's be real, in product development, it is associated with such a negativity that it creeps in that you have this thinking of first attempt success and anything else is failure. If you can't get it right on the first attempt, then you failed, which is such, hmm. You know, not even close to what it's supposed to be. And so I think when we define failure as something negative and the uncomfortableness, the something bad around it and let our fear and anxiety ultimately seem like something negative that we shouldn't be feeling and not something that we should instead embrace we are actually misinterpreting the feelings of failure and the feelings that come with it and not understand that it is something positive because feeling uncomfortableness is a sign of rapid growth and you learning and evolving. And when you look at a product, that means the product is evolving, becoming superior. And so... I think that's always interesting when we look at it. And I know that you feel very similar when it comes to the innovation, especially the like first attempt fail being defined as a total failure. I thought about this a lot, especially in terms of education and differences of culture, as you just pointed out. If you think about when we went to school, we were taught you learn information and you take a test and you either pass or fail, right? And within that, you know, there's more than just pass, you can excel and get an A or, but it's all about memorizing information and sending information back and you have one chance, right? You have one chance to take that quiz or that test or whatever. When really what we should be teaching is more of a scientific method, which you and I know about, you You try something, you learn from that experience, and then you try again, and you continue. That's a much better way of educating, right? But it's not something that we really do. And I think it's kind of sad that that's the way our education system is set up. But I think that's a big part of it. We grow up with thinking, pass or fail. And when you get into the professional world and you try something and it doesn't work out, you have this immediate fear and you have this, oh no, like we did this and it wasn't right. Instead of saying, hey, this wasn't exactly right, but this was right, or we learned this and now we can take it and improve it. Like the whole way to innovate is to understand 
where unmet needs are and where you can fill a gap, but you can't just do one thing and expect it to magically work, right? The whole process of what we do is about iterative testing and trying something, revising, learning, making it better, trying again. And that's how you innovate. And it's so hard because we've grown up with this pass-fail idea. We get into a business and we're worried about performance reviews or something. And our bosses are worried about their bosses looking at it and saying, oh, you did this and it didn't work. Instead of fostering a culture that you might have at a startup where it's like, hey, we're just going to keep going till we get this right and we're going to make it work. I totally agree with you. I mean, failure is a necessity to growth, to evolve. And as human factors experts, we understand this process. And so how quick we are to define failure just because we didn't get it right on the first attempt and having this whole pass fail mentality instead of, like you said, approach it like a process and learn from it. We learn that the process itself becomes more important, but our definition of failure with that whole pass fail mentality is stifling us. So when we consider it a process and we learn by trial and error and we see what works, what doesn't, and like you said, where unmet needs remain, then we actually learn and evolve from the process, but with what we're trying to uncover aligned. And so I think that's where we have this consistent failure to recognize, failure, no pun intended, but failure to recognize that this whole, because we didn't get it right at first attempt, is actually a form of perfectionism. And that perfectionism is such a restriction on you growing, you evolving, widening your definition of failure, right? Understanding the process, making you better at whatever it is that you're trying to do and not accept failure as the end. Like, oh, I failed at, you know, I failed on first attempts. So now game over. Like, what, what would we do? Where would we go from there if we kept doing that? And I think when you allow for failures to happen, you actually get to improve things and you can improve your relationship, your understanding for one another, whether it is in a personal relationship or in a work relationship. And when those relationships get better and you learn to work better together because you understand the needs of each other, then you get to learn together and evolve together. And that is actually the best foundation for innovation because then you can speak the same language. You're no longer second guessing whether the other person actually understands what you're trying to say. And I remember this quote and I shared it with you before and I heard it and yeah, cliche, it's Brene Brown. But she once said, if perfectionism is driving, shame is riding shotgun and fear is in the backseat. 
And if you look at that, and if you think about that just for even a second, you know how to bring it back to that point. You keep failing because your definition of failure is just a misinterpretation of the resulting feelings that you are experiencing from it. And once you learn how to deal with those experiences and not allow them to imprint on you as something negative, like anxiety, fear, you know, resulting from failure, then you can actually start to revel in them. And like these children are taught, come together around them, revel in them and learn from them and evolve. And so that speaks to me as something that we as human factors expert totally should understand, but yet we still fail all the time. Again, no pun intended, but fail all the time to understand that distinction, that nuance between the two. That's something that you and I often talk about when you mentioned we both have started businesses. And so there's something that comes up and we fail. And for a second, we start second guessing everything we've ever done. We think, oh my God. And here comes imposter syndrome. I have no clue what I'm doing. And that's the conversation that we keep holding around it. And I think that's the one that keeps driving us to challenge ourselves and our perspective and perception, quite frankly, of failure. I like Brene Brown. I've always liked her. I feel like perfectionism definitely can get in the way. It can get in the way and just exacerbate that fear that you have. I know sometimes uh, when you're just trying to even share results of research, you'll get caught up in the details of making sure the presentation is perfect. And that gets in the way of delivering needed information because you're so worried about things being perfect. So I like that quote. And I definitely agree that perfectionism can get in the way. But you also brought up the way we feel about failure. And I think that's even a bigger thing. I think in companies, you almost have to encourage people and allow them to try new things and make mistakes and create a culture that allows that takes the word failure away and allows for innovative ideas and experiments. Right. And I think that goes to the whole point where I said earlier, we'll get back to vulnerability. I think that's another aspect of it where we don't allow weakness. And because we associate vulnerability with weakness, we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable in work environments, especially in company cultures that don't seem to, shall we say, just support failure as something to embrace. So what ends up happening is you have this like stifled idea of vulnerability, which let's be honest, we already perpetuate in society as something that is considered negative, something weak, when in fact, actually being vulnerable is the most authentic way to show up. And when you can show up authentic in your true identity and who you are and how you are and not fear the, let's say, even potential of failure or being 
And here we go with all the words that Brene likes, being ashamed and feeling even guilt or anxiety and so many things because we consider it something negative, then you're never going to be your authentic self. And that in itself hinders the whole process of teamwork, being creative, having an open environment to discuss even the silliest idea, because that kind of ground is the uniqueness of it all. If you can achieve that environment, that in itself, that uniqueness is going to just allow your innovation to blossom. So I think one of the things is how, and I guess we could connect it to that whole first attempt to pass fail mentality, how as human factors experts, we understand the necessity for growth and failure. And we totally get it. Human-centered design approach and integrating usability evaluation and the iterative process. But when it comes to our own thoughts and concepts of achievement, we are so often stuck in a negative loophole of failure, equating it to a zero-sum game. And that is something that, frankly, starts at personal development. Because when you can gain that kind of self-awareness and understand that failure is something that you need and it is something positive and you should revel in it, then you can widen your definition of it and then you can actually apply it as something that'll propel you forward. Definitely. Being vulnerable is being real. So being vulnerable is very scary. But it's also the only way to make a true human connection. And as uh, people who are trained in psychology and with research, and we're trained to have empathy and connect to people. So we're probably a little more open to vulnerability, maybe than the average person. But I think everybody also has a little bit of fear of bringing your whole self to work, letting everyone know the real you. People talk about work persona. And I have my work persona and then there's me. At work, I'm this different caricature of myself. I remember once early on, on my human factors team, when I was at Compact before it became HP, we did one of those Myers-Briggs things and we get the INTJ, ENFP, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. And my boss, who appeared very introverted, received an extrovert. And I was like, what? You Really? You're an E? And she was like, well, I did it as me instead of as my work persona. And I oh thought, my. wow. So we don't know you. We only know a caricature of yourself, this limited piece. And I think this was many years ago. So this was 20 years ago. So I think people have gotten better about that. People have gotten better about saying this is who I am and being a little more open about that, about being able to share themselves a little bit more. And at least I hope. I feel like we're getting better at that as a society, as a corporate world. I feel like we're getting a little more accepting of people and their differences. And I think all of that is going to help us get better at it being accepting and being accepting of growth and learning and 
failing. I think we're on the right track because I see a lot of differences. And I hope a lot of people are not still just bringing a character of themselves to work. I mean, I usually share a lot of opinions with you, but I, this one, I just don't. I just don't see it. Especially, I think, to be honest, it may not even be that I disagree with you on that, but I see the world as someone who's neurodivergent. I have ADHD and I live on the spectrum. So I'm always masking and not masking is the challenge for me, right? Masking is easy for me. Not masking is the challenge for me because when I show up as my true self, it is from my life experience, it is met with negativity because we are considered too much, too emotional, not enough. We can't get it right. We can't focus. We can't listen. Pay attention. Why are you so lazy? You know, in school, it was probably labeled as disruptive or yeah, I could see that. Well, girls actually aren't. And that's the thing. Girls are the ones that always have accidents, the ones that are clumsy, the ones that daydream out of the window, the ones that take the hyperactivity. And I think I don't want to get too much into the ADHD detail, but the hyperactivity in girls is often intrinsic, like internal. So the hyperactivity in girls is internal, where boys can be seen physically hyper active. And that's why they used to have this whole association that it was more a boy's thing. Girls weren't so much ADHD. But our hyperactivity is in our thoughts, in our brain. We are always thinking and we overthink and we worry. And overthinking is such a cruel, cruel thing nature plays on you because you get so lost in the overthinking that you actually become more concerned of curating a perfect version of you and not contributing authentically. Because authenticity for you isn't something that's an option. You can't be authentic. You're not being accepted when you're authentic. So I think maybe me seeing it like me not agreeing with you on that point is because I truly see it from a different perspective. And I think especially corporate world, our corporate environments, they're not made for neurodivergent people. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. The fact alone that these open office spaces where 100 people have a desk in an open room, that alone already is anti neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. A neurodivergent person most likely cannot work in that kind of environment. So I think when you say you're seeing more vulnerability come up, I think for me, it's, I know I am because I've been on my journey of learning about ADHD and growing myself and embracing failure and redefining it. So for me, vulnerability has become a strength. And like you said, I actually, the, the whole masking and showing up as your true self, that is the glory I get to do as an entrepreneur in my company. I show up as me because mm -hmm. in my company, I don't care 
I think that's been such a big lesson to learn, and it's completely redefined my definition of failure. Because as someone with ADHD, I also, (laughs) I'm a big risk taker. So for me, taking risks isn't the same as a neurotypical person. They might be, I I remember when I first started my business, and I'm 100% sure you heard this too. It was like, oh, I could never live not knowing where my next paycheck is coming from. And I'm like, really? You've never been fired? (laughs) You've never been let go? You've never been laid off? You've never been furloughed or had to switch jobs and not knew where your next paycheck was coming from? It's the same thing. So I think that's where, as someone who's neurodivergent, I just don't see the difference. I just think having a job isn't different because you don't know whether you're going to have a paycheck and a job next month. So what's the difference? You know, might as well enjoy the ride. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I think when I first started out, people were like, well, you know, if you only wait five or 10 years, you'll probably get a big payout, like an early retirement offer or whatever. And I'm like, five or 10 years? (laughs) You want me to wait five or 10 years to take a risk on doing something that speaks to my soul, but yeah, okay. But I mean, that risk-taking, that shows vulnerability. That's what we're talking about. Are you going to allow yourself to be vulnerable and not be driven by perfectionism? Because as an entrepreneur, you should know going into it. And if you don't, pick a different job. Seriously, if you don't know going into it, you're going to fail. You're going to fail so many times in the beginning and in the middle and in the end. Like you're just going to keep failing because that's it. But here's the thing. And this is something when you said earlier about not making it a pass fail thing, not accepting that mentality and allowing it to be a process That's where I always come in with the, you have to learn how to dust yourself off and get up again because failing isn't what's teaching you. Yeah, it sucks. It hurts. There's a lot of emotions that come with that. But the true beauty is in learning how to get up again. How do you not let that damage every thing in your mind, every perception, every thought, every ambition? How do you not let it ruin you and your mindset and instead use it as fuel to, we can say do better, but just continue, get up, Mm -hmm. continue. And it's something that I've always thought something very personal, ironically, Because, yeah, we are talking about careers and not giving up and not masking yourself at work. But that all starts at home in your personal life. If you've adapted this mentality of masking, but let's strip that away. If you don't learn how to just let failure happen and embrace it as an uncomfortableness that Yes, comes with a lot of fearful 
emotions and thoughts and all the anxieties around it. But if you don't let that be something positive, let it teach you and let it teach you to sit in that uncomfortableness and really sit in it and analyze it. Why is it so uncomfortable? Why am I having such struggles with this? If you don't do that, then you'll never be able to change that whole idea of what failure is and ultimately change your definition of it and hence then improve. And so when we speak of perfectionism, one thing that, and I know you love Brene Brown too, so I get it, but I really like looking at it as this perfectionism is this 20-ton shield that sits on our chest and we even carry it around hoping that it'll protect us from being hurt or being punished or being fired or not being liked at work. But it also, to your point, keeps us from being entirely seen. And so this goes true for products and humans. If you keep letting perfectionism drive you, you will never finish a product because you can't get it all right on the first try. So the product will never be seen. So hence, you just cut off in total innovation. And that yields true for humans too. If you don't allow the opportunity of failure in by stepping out of your comfort zone, embracing the uncomfortableness, showing your true identity and self, because you're so afraid of not being perceived as perfect and it's going to yield rejection or dislike or failure. Or like I said, that right. whole work environments can be so intimidating. Then you will never truly be seen for being your most authentic self. So anything that yields from it can never fully be true or authentic. And I think that speaks to what you meant with the iterative mm -hmm. process, with the authenticity going into it in the teamwork and allowing yourself not to mask and finding out that your boss is an extrovert, not an introvert, you know? Well, and it's all a process of growth too. I think if you and I had said, well, we can't do anything until it's perfect, we would have never been able to start a business. And if we didn't have failures along the way, you're not able to adapt and to learn and to improve the business. So I think, and even the language you use around it changes, right? I start to say things instead of saying, oh, we failed at that. I'd say something like, okay, well, that didn't go to plan. So let's pivot, you know, but, and I feel that though. I don't feel like it's, a fail. I feel like it's something that happened that we had to learn from and move on and let's pivot. And I understand that sometimes if it's on a personal level, failure can feel very devastating. scary. Yeah, <laughs> devastating and very, very, very uncomfortable. But at least when it comes to business, I am starting to be like, it's all part of it. We just have to keep moving see what we learned, what do we want to do differently, and where do we go from here? And that's working for me on the professional side, but I still recognize that there's a lot of sort of fear and pain associated with a failure when it comes to something that's a little more on the personal level. Yeah, that's a very good point you bring up because one doesn't come without the other. Right. And that's why it's so difficult. That is truly why I think it is so difficult that 
we as humans and even as human factors experts, how do we keep forgetting that our definition of failure from our personal experience, from our personal repertoire actually affects what we consider failure in the work environment and ultimately the research and products we are working on. And so what I think is interesting is you say you're trying to use a new word for failure. I just call them whoopsie doodles. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm like, all right, messed up that one, you know, royally screwed that one up. I actually think one thing that also is interesting is I don't know if you've ever were confronted with a conversation like this, but the failure and the definition of it and that whole first attempt mentality, right, is also intertwined in our definition of success because we avoid risks and reach for mental models of success existing in the absence of failure. How is it even possible? And how have we as a culture and society kept perpetuating that? This exercise in failure avoidance stifles our potential and personal growth. And with that, like we keep saying, innovation. We become risk averse because we are taught that being vulnerable is a failure mode and only winning is the outcome that matters. So success is then by definition winning on the first try. Everything else is failure, which is such whoopsie doodle. And so over the past couple of weeks, I've been confronted with a lot of challenges in stopping that perpetual vicious cycle of letting failure be something that happens because I didn't get it right on the first try. And so I've been trying to embrace learning and widening my self-awareness and understanding of how this is all interconnected and intertwined, that constant drive for perfectionism. I have to get it right. Not allowing that to consume your thought process and, and make it only evolve around that, that in itself is a challenge. You probably feel this too, the constant worry. How mm -hmm. do you get rid of the worry of something and start worrying about the something and not the worry of the something? It's interesting because I feel like we let ourselves get all entwined. Like you said, our identity is often focused around our jobs or the success of our companies and it becomes who we are. I am this human factors expert and I am a business owner and it becomes like, feel like that's you, but that's only a part of you. You're just fine the way you are and you have ups and downs in your life, but you're just perfect as a person the way you are. It's just, we allow that stuff to sort of get in our heads and these thoughts about not being perfect or not succeeding and all of that. But it's because we're, one thing is work and a process and something, and it's not really us. We have to, in a way, sometimes pull ourselves away from it and think, the process of trying things, failing at things, learning from things, iterating on things, that's a really good process. And we are perfect people. Yeah, perfect, but you know what I mean. It's like the, uh -huh. you don't have to get wrapped up in 
how this changes you because you're you, whether you're at work or not at work, you're still you and you're still just fine. And I think sometimes we get so caught up. It's a business. And before the business existed, you were still you, right? (laughs) So you just have to sometimes just take a step back from it, I think, and think, okay, it's all fine. And it's all going to be fine. It was fine before and it's going to be fine again in the future. Yeah. And I think what you're saying rings true with how I feel about the whole idea of you're perfect as you are. Yeah. You can learn and evolve and improve Mm -hmm. for sure. And nobody's saying that you don't have to. I think we all do. Every day you should be learning something new. And even if it's not something new, let's say knowledge piece, maybe something Mm -hmm. new about yourself. You should challenge yourself. You should challenge your ideas that maybe you've had over so long. What is considered healthy? What is considered toxic? What is considered to be good for you? What is considered to be maybe something that you have a false perception and definition of? And because of that, keep misinterpreting. The false expectation that success is only truly achieved if you've achieved it on the first try and in the absence of failure, that in itself and how failure is considered such a negative and punishable experience. And this is where the nuance comes in, that even the attempt to achieve progress is dismissed. How is it that we punish and dismiss the attempt at something and the entire effort, therefore, is nullified and your hard work and continuous and diligent effort considered worthless. Your sacrifice for it labeled as only something, oh yeah, it happens, average. And your advancement from it invalidated by its minimal noticeable effect. Because yeah, there are failures where you can't show any learnings from, right? Like some Mm -hmm. just happen and as we said earlier, dust yourself off and try again, get up and don't give up. That's the only, let's say, success you yield out of it, but it's not visible. It's not a noticeable effect or something. And so because it is all caught up in this toxic and vicious cycle of the idea that success hinges on this, as we mentioned, zero-sum game. And again, as if success is possible without failure, right? Yeah, I think about science, right? If you just think about if you're trying to find the one thing that is going to, I don't know, cure something, right? You have to try so many other things and rule them out along the way. And so if you're trying something in a product development sphere and it doesn't work out, that's one thing, just one little thing that didn't work. And I think it's just fine not to move the needle right there. You have to be able to try and try and keep trying until you get things right. It's acceptable and me should be encouraged, not discouraged. But what are your thoughts on this? It's when we look at our profession, we're so good at identifying risks and mitigating them and designing them out of the product and understanding how that is such a great tool and such a great practice and it's so beneficial to the development and the innovation but 
when it comes to us, our personal life, we seem to find the optimal balance between risk and benefit when it comes to our products, but we can lose ourselves in negative thinking and fear of failure. And in those instances, the search for security circumvents failure, which, as we said, then stifles growth and progression. Why do you think we are so good at doing that, but so bad at it in reality? Yeah, I think obviously we're human. I think everybody has a fear of change. Anytime something new happens and you're learning from it, it's an uncomfortable feeling. If you just go back to doing things the way you always did them and you never have to change and then you never have to grow and it's comfortable and easy, but branching out and taking a risk and trying something new and experiencing failure and not reacting negatively to it is a great thing, but it's hard, right? It's hard to say, oh, I did that and that didn't work out. And to not internalize it is difficult. We all have fear and fear around change is a big one. Yeah, change. There's another big word, right? Yeah. But it's true. Some people embrace it. Some people can talk about it openly and some people isolate themselves in the uncomfortableness. Change is hard to deal with. Change is hard to adapt to. I think there's another beauty lesson that you can learn. Learn how to adapt. Learn how to be flexible and adapt to change. Because if you don't, you can almost be uncertain of anything in life, but one thing is for certain, and that is change. It's going to happen whether you embrace it or not, whether you hide from right. it or not. Understanding that you need to learn how to cope with it. This mm -hmm. is something I thought earlier when you were speaking about that process and when we spoke about the children being taught this idea of or the reality that failure is something to embrace. This concept is something that we have to understand that it is ultimately beneficial to us to learn. Because when we don't, when we teach ourselves failure is something negative, then in itself, we don't allow to learn how to cope with it. And when you don't learn how to cope with failure, that's when it feels so devastating. Yeah. life ending, like a end of the road kind of thing. But when you look at it as something that could be a new beginning, that maybe we can take any example, personal work. I've had experiences very similar in work and personal relationships where when you stop the masking, when you finally drop everything and just speak open and honestly about what it is that is triggering you or what it is that is hurting you or what unmet need isn't being met by the other person or worse what do you keep doing that drives me insane or triggers you if you don't have that conversation how are you ever going to have the better relationship mm -hmm. so for me it's not just the end of something it actually it's the beginning of a new relationship a new kind of experience and i've had that happen in my personal life and i've had it happen at work i fondly remember a very good now friend of mine we started as colleagues and oh we were not great colleagues <laughs> and 
I do remember there being an incident where we both blew up at each other. And it kind of triggered this very honest conversation in the end. It didn't come while we were angry. We both had to walk away and calm and think about and self-reflect and understand what it was that was leading to it and why we can't seem to get along. But once we took our time and we reconvened, we talked about everything and just laid it out. Because at that point, what does it matter? Are we going to continue like we did before, which didn't work, but (laughs) no harm, no foul. But what ended up happening was we really were just both so shocked at the perception of the other and what was happening, how we felt about the events, that we both had this newfound respect for each other. We became good friends after that because when it actually came to that, we ended up finding out things about each other. Oh my God, we had so much in common. (laughs) And that's the beauty. So that speaks to this whole idea of, oh, never be vulnerable. Don't ever be weak and make sure you have your work persona because you don't want people at work to know you. I mean, it's just, it's not my cup of tea. It sounds like you and your colleague both were really open to the vulnerability. You both kind of sat in it and said, here we we are, this is who we are. Yeah, that's so good. And the other thing I was thinking that you were talking about too, when you're talking about your own growth and self-reflection, that all comes back to vulnerability too, because you have to be vulnerable with yourself to even realize where you are and how you can grow and how you can not internalize some of these things as negative. You have to be aware of how you're reacting. So I think vulnerability is a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, it starts with acknowledging that you're not perfect per se and that you do make mistakes. And apologizing is a true art form too. I recently had to learn how to do it better. I'm not perfect at it, but I've always been good to be honest with myself and understand, okay, oopsie doodle. Maybe I should say something here because that was not great. And there are moments in life where you don't have that because you know the other person could not care less. But in the situations where it is vital and important and important to the other person or important to the process, a work environment, a culture, yeah, it definitely needs to happen. But interestingly, I recently had to learn more what does an apology actually involve? Because it's not just saying I'm sorry. There's so much more around it. You have to identify what happened, how it hurt the other person how it hurt the process, how you felt about it and how that person might have felt about it. And then truly show your kind of remorse and your sincerity by saying, I do understand it now and I'm sorry. When I think of that and I think of this like false expectation that we have of failure. And here we go, Brene Brown, the shame and the (laughs) guilt, right? And the fear that comes with it, it's almost sad to say, but day by day, we are setting ourselves up for failure because we're not making the connection between them. And when we speak about work cultures and project teams, come on, Christy, how many times have you seen egos simply collide? Oh, yeah. 
And, and that's hard. It's hard when it happens too, especially if it's different, like you were able to handle something with colleagues, but it's really difficult if the ego is somebody who's in a more powerful position and you have to come up against that and try to be your best self, but also have to deal with that ego and protect yourself. And at the same time as a human factors person, you're trying to like argue for the support the be the voice of the end user, the customer. And if somebody's attacking you from an ego perspective, as opposed to a rational, logical, professional argument, it can be really difficult to deal with. And and you do feel like a failure. If you walk out of something like that and you've just been berated maybe or talked down to you or acted, somebody acted like your research and your opinion and your work didn't matter, it's really hard not to internalize some of that stuff and think of it as a failure. But really and truly, if you step back and look at it, where is the failure? Is it all on you or is it on the ego-driven person? So you have to get past the terrible feelings and think about, wait a minute, what really just happened here? <laughs> you know? You mean the cringiness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definite cringy. Yeah. That is so true. How do you go up against the ego part? We didn't even talk about the ego part yet. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just ego hindering you. It's pure selfish ego. Because that's what it is. If you can't learn how to care about something, whether it's a person, whether it is your project, your research, without being hung up in its expectations and outcomes, then you're letting ego drive the car, as Brene would say. (laughs) And when you let ego drive, everything becomes a hot mess. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. When you let ego drive everything and inspire you even and determine which path you're going to take and how you handle a conflict, then you're setting yourself up for a whoopsie doodle. Do you ever have a situation where you're running a study and you're behind the glass and the people who designed the product are sitting there with you and you're communicating or someone else in the lab is communicating with the end user and they're saying that person is stupid it's not the product needs to evolve it's that person is stupid that person doesn't know what they're talking about what an idiot blah 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 and then the next person comes in and then the next and so after a while they start to realize that they're starting from ego but after a while they start to look at it and say hmm maybe all of these people coming in here are not idiots. Maybe I need to think about this in a different way. It's that famous moment where you realize that, ooh, you don't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You cannot exist in a vacuum. You were speaking of how they're communicating. That made me think of this super important part of what we haven't even brought up yet is communication. How do you communicate during the conflict? Are you able to communicate effectively? And I don't mean like state your facts and stick to the truth. And those are all very important things, but authentically communicate. Keep the channels open even when it is cringy, even when it's so uncomfortable 
that you are waltzing over your opening statement in your head over and over and over and you cannot let it go because you're almost afraid of it, but you know how critical it is. And I think when we think about progression, whether it is in a project yourself or in a relationship, we have got to understand and recognize how important it is to work through the difficulties of it. Like sailing through the good times. Yeah, it's fun. I like it. Everybody likes it. But it's how you handle the difficulties, how you handle the uncomfortableness that determines what it is that you have. If it's a relationship, how deep it can be, how long it can last, how true it will be. Ultimately, how important it is to both a family unit or a partnership or and if you look at it from a perspective of project, if you can't discuss on a project team the miscommunication issues that you might be having, which isn't a shocker. It's very common. How many times has the human factors person on a project team been unofficially elected the mediator of the group? (laughs) And, And so if you don't understand how critical it is to keep communication between the parties open, then you can never learn from it. I don't know and maybe Brene, if you're listening, you can give us some (laughs) tips. But I don't know how you can keep learning with and from each other, grow, evolve as any kind of unit. If you don't know how to keep the communication channels open, or if you don't know how critical it is to do so, even in the cringiest moments. I think when we look at it that way, the ego part, the communication part, the vulnerability. Yeah, it sounds like a big TED talk today on our emotions and how we deal with fear. But ultimately, those are all the drivers that shape your perception and definition of failure, which, as we said, affects all outcomes of your life. I mean, how do you deal with communication issues? I think it's hard. Communication on a personal level, I'm married. I feel like we have that part covered, but I think sometimes it's more challenging because to communicate well, to me, I know we say this word a lot, but I do feel like you have to be vulnerable and you have to be authentic. There's levels of communication. If you're only communicating strictly about a project and what has to be done or whatever, this is one level of communication. But if you're trying to get any deeper, you have to be more of yourself and more open and authentic. And I have a business partner. So it is challenging when we disagree because we're 50-50 partners. She thinks this, I think that. And then how do you get past that? You have to be able to be open and say, this is what I'm thinking. These are my concerns about this. These are my reasons for believing this. What are your reasons? What are your concerns? And how do we pull this together and align somewhere in the middle? And then in terms of projects, I think communication is even more important, especially I've always felt like I was the voice of the end user and I'm their advocate. Mm -hmm. And so I would try to take myself out of it. So when you're in front of the engineer or the designer or whoever created whatever thing you're about to say is not perfect. I would try to not talk about me and you, but talk about it and them. So I'd be like, okay, so this is what happened with it. There were lots of great things, but they struggled with this or they Mm. didn't understand that. And 
it's so I try to take it like it's not me and you right now. We're not talking about me and you. We're talking about it and what happened when I observed them. I brought it down a level instead of up and close. That's interesting. I also might add to that if you don't approach the conversation as this is what you did wrong. This is how you hurt me. This is how. You're not seeing what we're trying to say. You're not reading our reports. If you allow for it to be more, hey, I've noticed that we're struggling with this. I don't think that makes this work. We are not communicating our deadlines. We are not communicating the project outcomes. We are not communicating whatever it is.、Uh, And that is leading us to it could be anything delay in project, failure in project, overall failure in project because、mm-hmm. that does happen. When you then look at it that way, it quickly for me elucidates how that is so deeply connected to how you approach conflict, how you、mm-hmm. communicate. And so I can sit here and say, "Oh my God, you have to do X, Y, Z," and then go home and not do it myself. Do you、and、notice your language changed? Your first few sentences were, "You are not doing this. You're not reading. You're not blah blah blah. You're not hearing." And to we are missing this. And that is the huge difference. It isn't a blame game. It is the identification of things that aren't working, keeping communication open, and learning to remain vulnerable. That's another key. Remain vulnerable. Continue to foster a safe space to have these conversations. Not allow people for their walls to come back up. Foster that environment so that they can keep communication channels open. Because that's another thing we as humans love to do. Oh, somebody shut us down. Now we're going to be quiet. Like we're going to go radio silent. Like we're not saying anything anymore. We're going to be the mouse at the conference table who only takes notes because when we said something last time, we were ridiculed for it, and that does happen. You are going to be unheard. You're going to be misinterpreted. It's going to happen. You're going to be rejected. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but learning to. Embrace that uncomfortableness and seeing it as a beautiful opportunity to learn from it and evolve、mm-hmm. from it. I think that's the bigger lesson. Also, every time you do that, as you say, how you use they and it. Every time you have a conflict like that, you learn new things. That was another thing you learned.、Mm-hmm. You are now applying. We should always remember to also not allow. Past patterns of miscommunication to repeat.、Mm-hmm. If we've learned that this works better, don't fall back into your other stuff again. Keep that going. It might not be perfect yet, but it definitely works better than the other thing. It's the best advice I ever got. You tried it this way, now try it that way. <laughs> it was just so simple, but you tried it this way, didn't work. Try it that way. Try it another way, and we don't have to get philosophical with the definition of insanity and all that stuff. But if you keep doing the same thing, how do you expect outcomes to be different? And so we just need to stop being afraid of failure, stop being afraid of making a mistake, or even attempting.、Mm. Learn how to adjust, recalculate, and aim again, and not be taken out of the game because of one. "Quote unquote, whoopsie doodle." Exactly. Everything doesn't have to be catastrophic. I feel like 
something happened, you missed the mark. Okay, so you just adjust a little bit. It doesn't have to be like this, oh my gosh, this terrible thing that just happened. And it all comes with, like you said, self-awareness, being kind to yourself and realizing if you made a mistake, figure it out. What did you do wrong? How can you learn from it? How can you improve? How can you make that better? And if you're in a communication situation, maybe it's not all you. Maybe some of the mistake is on somebody else. And how can you break down those walls and try to get a better outcome and not internalizing it? Like you said, not sitting at the table being like, from now on, I'm not saying a word. I'm only taking notes. (laughs) We don't want to go there. We want to be able to just keep learning and growing. And not just that, but also progress. When you think of the product, I just think of the situations where I would have product managers say to me, oh, while we're at it, let's add that, the featureitis. And then (laughs) you sit there and you have a product that has a hundred features. Nobody know how to use it. What's the point? Again, if you keep defining yourself as a failure because you didn't get one thing right. I mean, you're, oh my God, such a pun. You're setting yourself up for failure (laughs) to begin with. (laughs) But yeah, if you can't learn how to cope from a failure, learn to get up again, but be kind and be respectful in communicating that and stay honest and keep your communication channels open during it, no matter how uncomfortable it gets, then you'll never be able to see that innovation only happens when you fail. It cannot happen in a vacuum. And it doesn't happen in the absence of failure. Success does not have to be defined by absence of failure. Success cannot be achieved in the comfort of security. Security is another huge thing, which we didn't get to today, sadly, but maybe next time. I think what you said is so important on that mindset of pass-fail and how we need to embrace it as a process, trial and error. That's what we always say, the iterative process. Letting that actually play out naturally is probably the biggest lesson we can learn from it. Agree. You agree? I do. <laughs> <laughs> any any last wise words you'd like to share on this topic? I don't know if I have any wise words at all, but I'll give it. A- <laughs> I'll give it a try. No, I just I think this is a great topic. I think we've covered it, that failure is good thing. Failure is not a bad word. Failure is not even something to fear. Failure happens. We learn, we move on, we take it and run with it. And that's how we become better. That's how our products become better. That's how our relationships become better even. And I think in our businesses, we should just foster that environment to say, let's try things. And if this doesn't work, we'll try something else. And I think that's fine. And I love that kind of attitude. And I like to work around that kind of attitude. And not stop believing in yourself. You should Mm -hmm. believe in the process. You should be patient with it. If you know something to be true, then you know it'll work out. You just need to believe in the process, but also believe in yourself that you 
know what you're doing. Get rid of that imposter syndrome. And I know it's hard. Like I still sit at my desk sometimes and go, really? They think I know what I'm doing? Wow. But we really need to understand to not lose faith in ourselves. Keep believing that what we know is true and be patient with ourselves. Be kind to ourselves. Be kind to others in the process. And I think if we learn that and we learn to always remain respectful, that in itself can foster that culture we were talking about where failure is embraced and not considered a failure. All right, then. First of all, it was a beautiful conversation. Thanks so much, Christy. Tell listeners where they can find you. So my name is Christy Harper. You can look me up on LinkedIn. My company is end-to-end user research at www.endtoendusersearch.com. Well, thank you, Christy, for being on the show today. It's great to be here. I'm really glad that we did this. It's such a good conversation. Yes, and we enjoyed having you, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. All right, folks, that's it for today. What a fantastically uncomfortable yet pleasant and rewarding discussion today. If you'd like to hear Christy and I talk more about failure and how it drives innovation and lays the groundwork for resilient outcomes, come and join us at the annual Human Factors and Ergonomic Society meeting in Washington, D.C. from October 23rd through 27th, where Christy and I, including a few of our special friends and esteemed peers, will continue the conversation in our Failure as a Path to Innovation and Resilient Outcomes panel on Friday the 27th from 10.30 a.m. to noon in the Georgetown West Room at the HFES conference. In addition, the Human Factors cast will be in attendance as well, and Nick and I will be live streaming from the conference on Thursday the 26th, so make sure you check your social media wherever you follow us, or check our websites at safeeffectivepodcast.com or humanfactorscast.media for more details on our live stream. And as always, please share your thoughts with us and comment wherever you're listening to today's discussion. And please show us some love and support the show and leave us a five-star review and tell all your friends about us and maybe even consider supporting the Human Factors Cast Network on Patreon. Links to all of our socials and our websites are in the description of the episode. Thank you again, Christy, for getting so pleasantly uncomfortable with me today. It is much appreciated. And I can't thank you enough for coming on and being so brave, honest, and vulnerable with me and our listeners today. As for me, I've been your host, Heidi Merzad, and you can find me across all social media at HFUX Research, as well as our show's social media at Safe Effective Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Christy and I, and of course Nick, shall see you in D.C. next week at the HFES conference. And of course, as always, until next time, stay safe and effective. All right, then. Nick, you can come back. Okay. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. 
Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in human factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting human factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends.